Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on the pod, we are sitting down with the Executive Director of the United Nations Population Fund. We'll be hearing about why sexual and reproductive health is critical for development. It is that empowerment that actually leads now to all the other things. Economic empowerment, political empowerment, and social empowerment and cultural empowerment. Why even the global goals need local ownership. If governments and sovereignties don't own it, there's no way they're going to be able to mobilize resources to be able to implement this. And why there's still such a long way to go when it comes to equality. If we were introducing a methodology for detecting or for preventing prostate cancers in men in the world, it will be fully funded by every government because men take those decisions. Stay with us. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. Today is a special pod because you haven't just got me, you've got two for one. I am joined on the pod by Associate Professor Sharon Bessel. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Martin. It's very exciting to be here. Sharon, for those of you who don't know her, is an associate professor at Crawford School of Public Policy. She is the lead researcher on a multi-million dollar project looking at a new measure of poverty. And on top of that, she's an expert in the rights of children and the gendered dimensions of poverty. Did I get that about right, Sharon? You did. Um, the one thing that I might add to that is just on our, our large project looking at poverty measurement, There, it's not just me, there's a team of us working on that. We've got funding from DFAT and we're working in partnership with the International Women's Development Agency. So lots of people involved in that work. That actually makes Sharon the perfect person to join in the discussion with uh, today's guest. Yesterday evening, Sharon and I had the very great privilege of talking to Dr. Babatunde Oshitainen. He is an Undersecretary of the United Nations and Executive Director of the United Nations Population Fund, also known as UNFPA. He was with us here at Crawford School to deliver a really interesting talk on tackling global health, and a podcast recording of that talk is available on the Crawford School website. We'll put a link to it in the description of this pod. Sharon, I'm sure in your work you've probably come across the UNFPA. Can you tell us a little about their work, what they do? So UNFPA is the lead agency within the UN system working on issues of sexual and reproductive health, including family planning. It's perhaps not as well known as some of the other agencies within the UN family, perhaps not as well known as UNICEF or UNDP, um, and sometimes those agencies tend to steal the limelight a little bit, but it is an incredibly important agency. So UNFPA describes its mission as delivering a world where every pregnancy is wanted every childbirth is safe, and every young person's potential is fulfilled. Now, when we really think about that mandate, those words are really powerful. You know, the the 
rate of maternal mortality in the global south is absolutely scandalous. It has been scandalous for decades. And until 2000 and the Millennium Development Goals, when we slowly saw issues of maternal health coming onto the global agenda, it was an issue that was really just pushed aside. But the reality was that women were dying every day in outrageously large numbers through childbirth. UNFPA's work has been incredibly important, both in addressing that issue in providing services for women, in supporting better policies, and also in putting the issue on the global agenda. So the work that UNFPA does really matters. Well, lots of those things were covered by the executive director in his talk, which we'll play in a second. I really enjoyed it. I felt like I, I learned a lot, particularly about the work of UN agencies. We'll get to that in a second. But first, a quick reminder that we are really interested to get your feedback on these pods and the ideas discussed on them. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum or give us the thumbs up, the angry face or whatever else you choose on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. After the interview, Sharon will give us a few extra thoughts on what was talked about. But for now, let's have a listen to the interview. Dr. Babatunde Oshitimen, thank you for joining Policy Forum Pod. Thank you very much for asking me. The most recent commission on the status of women concluded earlier this month and at the commission the UN Secretary General said that achieving gender parity at all levels, political, cultural, economic and social, is to quote the clear objective of our time and he went on to say that gender parity must be based on women's empowerment. How does the aim of women's empowerment shape UNFPA's work? Number one, I want to speak to gender parity. Gender parity is a lofty goal, but no country in the world has been able to accomplish that. And so we have a tall task ahead of us in order to be able to do that in the human development space. That's a fact. Now, when you ask me how does empowerment of women shape the work that we do at UNFPA, My answer is very simple. A woman or a girl who is not able to determine her body and her body functions and what she can do and not do is not empowered. To that extent, the lady or the, the, the woman or the girl must know about her physiology, must know about the transition from childhood to adulthood, must know about our sexuality, must be able to determine when and how she wants to have children, if she wants to marry, how many children she wants to have, and the spacing that she, she needs to have between one child and the other. If you have no control over that, then you are not empowered. Now, of course, it is that empowerment that actually leads now to all the other things, economic empowerment, you know, political empowerment, and social empowerment and cultural empowerment. And I, I, I want to say that the foundation is, you know, your ability to control your sexual and reproductive health and exercise your rights as a human being. Dr. Oshutimen, you, you made the point when you began to answer that question that no country in the world has achieved gender parity. And you're absolutely right. When we think about gender parity, we often look to the Scandinavian countries as models, but they're not necessarily models for other parts of the world. 
Are there countries in the global south that are achieving what you've described that we should look to um, in terms of learning how we can move towards women's empowerment, particularly around sexual and reproductive health? I think many countries are aspiring to provide greater access to information, education and services uh, for sexual reproductive health and ensuring that the rights of women are protected. And I, and I would immediately, one that jumps to my mind is Rwanda. Rwanda has done extremely well in terms of what is done with women and empowerment and also representation. Um, I also know that a few number of uh, Latin American countries are also aspiring to that. But, you know, the cultural context in which all of this happened sometimes is very contentious and it's very difficult because very few countries are homogeneous. And so as you get into it, you will see that, yes, in some parts, you get you know, something close to it. In other parts, it doesn't work. Uruguay has done ex excellently well in terms of going towards that. But again, Uruguay is not, it's not homogeneous. It has different uh, groups of immigrations that, that actually determine how that shapes out. So we now have the Sustainable Development Goals, which are shaping the development agenda for the next 15 years or so. How does that shape the work of UNFPA and how do you tread the line between those global goals, which are seen as being universally appropriate, and the kind of local context that you've just talked about? How do, how do you get that balance right? The 17 goals, even though are called global goals, they're supposed to be local goals. And, and basically the intent of the 17 goals is that it would be implemented locally by governments government leading the charge with private sector, with civil society, and the UN assisting it. And so, in a sense, if we, would, if we are going to do it according to expectation, each government, you know, would sit around a table and have all these others, a total society, total nation approach for planning, for implementation, for evaluation, and for being able to look at results, so I I don't see a, a I don't see a there's no uh, I, I I don't see a problem in in trying to draw this down to to local level. The, you have to say this, and I think it's important that implementation also speaks to financing, and the financing of it, it the way we look at it has to be you know, mainly domestic resources. And so if governments and sovereignties don't own it, there's no way they're going to be able to mobilise resources to be able to implement these. On the subject of finance, the Trump administration has reinstate, reinstated the Mexico City policy, the so-called global gag rule, uh, and is also proposing deep cuts to funding for UN agencies. How do you expect these sorts of developments to impact the global goal of empowering women and girls, or indeed impact UNFPA's work? We at UNFPA see these as uh, unfortunate uh, because the United States has always been a champion for women's rights and women's empowerment. But, but, but I have to say that we must go past this. 
And we at UNFPA are speaking to governments, both in the donor community and in program countries, to go back to the issue we discussed in Addis Ababa in 1975, in 2015, sorry, I said it's 1975, in 2015, when we decided that an implementation of uh, the SDGs has to be local, has to, finances has to be local. So I, I take, I'll give you an example. I tell governments that depending on donors for commodities for family planning, is very wrong because it is the governments have the the they have the, uh, the the function of looking after the welfare of women and girls in their in their communities why would you wait until somebody now brings commodities for you to be able to look after the health and the welfare of your women and girls so it's about reprioritization of budgets, it's about making sure that we can assist governments to put the appropriate, you know, priorities on women and girls' issues, and 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 also monitor the implementation of this so that it actually goes down to the last mile. And I and I say this, and I say it with a deep sense of responsibility, that if it was, uh, if we were introducing, for an example. If we were introducing a methodology, say, uh, for detecting or for preventing prostate cancers in men in the world, we, we, it will be fully funded by every government because men take those decisions. So it comes back to the issue of gender equality and the way that we, as society and governments, you know, look at their women and treat them and value them. So. If we value them appropriately, we should have no problems with it. So creating that local ownership that you talk about is vitally important in any context. In a context of, of conflict and crisis, it arguably becomes even more important. And so often women and girls' health, and particularly sexual and reproductive health, is overlooked in, terms of, in, in times of crisis. UNFPA is working actively in a number of, of conflict zones in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, um, in South Sudan. That's, that must be incredibly difficult professionally, but also emotionally for the people who are, who are engaged in that work. Where do you begin to try to get that local ownership of women and girls' health in a situation of conflict? Um, and, and where do you try to get the buy-in from? We shouldn't talk of conflict alone. We should talk about disasters too, because both go together. And, and I want to say that, yes, it must be difficult in Yemen, it must be difficult in Syria uh, for, for women to get the right uh, services and the appropriate investment for their, for their health and all. But it comes back to what I said. It's about gender and gender equality. Because after all, you know, Syria, Damascus, say, or if you go out of Damascus, there, there are spends. There are spends that are going on looking after those people, looking after people. And, and I think it's, it's just about advocacy, making sure that each government understands that as you... Uh, as you then try to get out of the conflict and as you invest to reestablish livelihoods and neighborhoods, 
You must also invest in the lives of women and girls so that they can be part of that. And, and I think, you know, that, that's an important piece. Again, when you look at the disasters, uh, and I will speak to, say, the Pacific, the Wilson or Palm, it's the same. I mean, we, we have to make sure that governments of those islands assisted sometimes by Australia and or New Zealand, or indeed governments outside of this region, build resilience. So it is not going to be every year you go back to doing the same thing as you did the last year, but making sure that every year you build on it so that the next cyclone will not have this, the, as, as heavy a damage on your systems as, as it did the last time. You have a strong personal commitment to progressing the sexual and reproductive health and rights of young people, uh, and UNFPA is a leader in this area. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. What are the major issues for young people globally when it comes to sexual and reproductive health? I, I, I will start with the first, which is uh, comprehensive sexuality education ability to provide, you know, appropriate and correct information to young people as they transit from from childhood to adulthood. Now, I always worry, and I'm always bothered, when people push back on that sort of very simple, clear language. Why would you not want people to know about their bodies? Why would you not want them to be able to master what is going on within their physiology? Why would you not want them to be able to prepare and anticipate so that, you know, for, for girls, they can also understand that they have to, you know, be hygienic about certain circumstances. For boys, they will also understand the, their vulnerabilities. That's what we, we need to do. And, and I, there's a, a great deal of pushback on this. So, comprehensive sexuality is the first. The second of course, is information beyond that about, uh, about, about what is possible, about services, and, 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 and that uh, must be universal. You know, young people, like everybody else in society, must know that they can go to a place and get information, get counselling. And, and then, of course, being able to access that service itself uh, it's, it's a bit challenged in many, many places. Um, even in areas of the world where I know that uh, this is available, young people are very reticent to go to those places because they always have this, oh, somebody's going to ask me a question, I don't want that question. Uh, or somebody would know me because I'm in my neighborhood. Now, so we have to overcome this and begin to talk to young people uh, in the manner in which we know they will understand. Social media, you know, provide them information without a filter. Make sure that 
We also then set up youth-friendly spaces for them to be able to access information and services. I think that's going to be the solution to it. Issues around family planning, around sexual and reproductive health are very often seen as being women's issues. So what is it that we need to be teaching boys so that they see that these are their issues too? And then what role do men need to play um, to ensure that we, we progress sexual and reproductive health? I think the reason why we talk, we talk about women and girls all the time is because they suffer the greatest or the greater consequence of, you know, uh, of, of violence and of uh, the, the misdemeanor of, of boys and, and men. So in a sense, you want to protect them and make, give them the information and, and the empowerment to be able to protect themselves and to be able to uh, take action against it. Now that's one. Two, it, it also goes back to the issue I, I talked about that we, we see the gender power relation between men and boys, between men, boys and, and, and women and girls, is in most society is very, is very, is very large. So, so they cannot negotiate. They cannot, you know, do what they're expected to do. So being able to empower them to be able to say no to it uh, would, be, would be a great, a huge advantage. Now, what can we do with the boys? I think that the the issue of comprehensive sexuality education is important because if you teach them properly from from primary through all the way to university about you know responsible sexuality and how they should deal with people respect the space of the other people and understand that the girl is just as bright as as you the girl is just as endowed as you and you have no advantage over her. I think that will work and work enormously. I think that's what we need to do. Now, for the men, I also think it's a question of sitting them down and taking them through, you know, several things to enable them to understand what the advantages of looking after their women and their daughters and their sisters and their aunts in order for society to grow. And I'll give you an example of that. We started what we call the husband school in West Africa. And the husband school is a very simple uh, uh, construction. We bring men in a community together under a mentor, and the mentor sees them, you know, maybe twice a week, and they sit, you know, and talk about things. And they talk about a wide range of, of issues, starting with community sexual education, to the issues of maternal health, to the issues of, uh, of contraception. And what we found was that when that has successfully been carried out in communities, first the uptake of contraception goes up. Women then tend to go to antenatal clinics and tend to deliver in, in, uh, in, in, in services. And we found that maternal mortality went down. And child mortality... So interesting thing also went down because women who have more than one child would actually take their children to the clinic when they have an antenatal care. And so they get immunization, they get all the other things. So I think it's just a matter of ensuring that we can engage with them and on a constant basis and make sure that 
they can also take responsibility. Finally, we've spoken about the many challenges that you and FBA is responding to, as well as some significant achievements. What's the one issue that you consider to be an absolute priority for the next five years? I think the absolute priority for UNFPA must be, uh, I would say, because I think it's probably the most important human development intervention. How do we, today, 225 million women who are in union want family planning and they are not getting it. How can we spend the next five years trying to get that to zero? Now, implication is that it's not just going to be the family planning alone. It's going to be girls' education. It's going to be, you know, providing access. It's going to be building health systems that will deliver it. It's going to be quality of care and service. Now, if we can do that using family planning as the as the uh, as as the entry point would actually make a a lot of difference to the lives of women, life of girls, life of their families and communities around the world. Some terrific insights on some very big challenges ahead, Dr. Bambathundi Ushutimin. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. You're listening to Policy Forum Pod, and that was Dr. Babatundi Oshitimin, and I thank him very much for his time there, and indeed the UNFPA for helping to organise that. Sharon, you're still with us. What did you make of the interview? I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with Dr. Oshitimin. He is a very engaging person, and he's clearly passionate about these issues. For me, one of the most interesting things, and I think one of the most significant things of the interview, was the way in which he framed issues in terms of gender equality and women's empowerment. And yes, we did ask some questions around that, so we led him in that direction. Um, But his responses, I thought, were not just conceptual, but were really heartfelt in terms of what we need to do to progress women's empowerment and girls' empowerment. And as he spoke... I got the sense of his experience in having worked at the coalface in addressing women dying in childbirth, girls being married at the age of nine or ten and the impacts on their lives, not just on their health but on their lives and the extent to which he has thought through the way in which we need to respond to those issues at a policy level um, but also at a practical level. So I think that framing that he brings in terms of empowerment and also the framing in terms of human rights issues is really important. He didn't see any conflict between culture and progressing human rights. He could see the way in which, and he explained to us, the way in which um, progressing better health care, better access to reproductive health, progressing sexual rights for boys and girls, for women and men, um, but particularly for women and girls, fits easily within many different diverse cultures and in many different countries. So I think that framing that he brings is actually really important. Yeah, that was really interesting, wasn't it? And you asked a question about the role of men in all of this. What did you make of his answer? I thought his answer was really interesting. Um, He began by talking about the importance of educating not just girls but also boys around these issues. Um, And then from there went into talking about um, the role that men have to play. But I think at at a higher level, if you like, or in terms of the bigger picture, One of the the really significant issues, for me at least, 
and I hope it doesn't sound trite in saying this, but is to hear an African man talking about these issues in such a powerful way. We often come to these issues with assumptions, um, with assumptions about particular parts of the world, with assumption about culture, and with assumptions about men. I think Dr. Oshotimian breaks down a lot of those assumptions and gives us some insights um, into the way in which these issues are being discussed um, in Africa, in parts of the world where we often hold stereotypes, and what leadership from not just women but from men on issues of women's empowerment, on issues of sexual and reproductive health, what that leadership is bringing to the issues. Um, so I think to hear him talk about these things in such a passionate way, but also in such a knowledgeable way, is really significant. And that was a feature of his talk at Crawford School last night as well. It certainly seemed that people were, were all, all quite moved by some of the things that he had to say. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's um, part of the, the power of leadership when we hear people speaking about these issues and for a man from his background to be talking about these things he brings not just a power but an authenticity I think he's worked as a as a medical practitioner he was minister for health so he brings an incredible bank of knowledge to the work that he's doing um, and I think to hear men speak out in the way that he does about violence against women is really important. Women need to have the space to talk about these issues and to talk about the solutions. But we also need to ensure that men are talking about these issues and men are genuinely engaged in thinking about what the what the solutions are, what the pathways forward are. And I think he, he raises those issues in a really important manner. A reminder again that a recording of that talk from last night that he delivered at Crawford School uh, is available as a podcast and we will put a link to it in the description of this pod. Sharon, I thought one of the interesting things that he touched on was around the sustainable development goals and how they might be applied at a state level. What did you make of that? Yeah, Martin, I thought that was really interesting as well. Um, in the podcast and then later in the talk, he, he spoke a number of times about local ownership. He recognised the importance of um, official development assistance, the role of, of, of other kinds of development assistance from civil society organisations and so on. But he focused on local ownership. He focused on the importance of local financing of these initiatives, which is really a signifier of, of political will. And he took that back to thinking about the sustainable development goals. He spoke very importantly, I think, about local ownership of those sustainable development goals. He saw no tension whatsoever in the universal aspirations of those goals and the way in which they can be taken up and used in meaningful ways at the local level to produce better outcomes for people. And I think the way he framed the development, the, the sustainable development goals and their local meaning, their local applicability, contrasts with the Millennium Development Goals and shows how far we've come in our thinking about these issues. The Millennium Development Goals were not developed in the same way as the SDGs. They weren't a process of, based on a process of consultation. They were incredibly important in shifting the global development agenda. But in some ways, they ended up looking a bit like league tables. Who's achieved what? How do we compare across countries? And one of the points that's been made about the MDGs, including by the architects of those goals, was that that comparison across countries wasn't always fair because some countries started from a very different baseline. 
with the SDGs, we've moved on, I think, from that tendency to, to compare across countries to produce these league tables to thinking much more deeply about how governments, how civil society organisations, how local actors can, can take those goals and really make a difference to human development, can really make a difference in the lives of people every day. And I think the, the way in which Dr. Osho Timen talked about that was really quite fascinating. Fascinating indeed. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Sharon. I hope you've enjoyed the experience. It's been terrific. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, look, it's been fantastic for us as well. And hopefully we can get you back on soon. Maybe we can get you back to talk about the individual deprivation measure. I would love to. Great. A quick note of thanks also to Camilla Burkett from the uh, Development Policy Centre. She's editor of the excellent Dev Policy blog for her help in sort of framing some of the questions that we asked today. A reminder too that you can catch up with us on social media. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum or you can find us on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. If you've enjoyed what we've talked about today, we would really welcome it if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever other podcast platform you choose to use. Doing that would be a big help to us in getting word out about the series. We'll be back again soon with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, don't forget you can keep up to date with all of the latest on public policy issues throughout the region at policyforum.net. We'll see you next time. Cheerio.